0: Hey there, Onion people. We're walking on the edge today in imagining the afterlife. My good friend Terry Surratt and I were talking about podcasts. He had just finished mowing his yard and he asked, who mows the grass in heaven? How we imagine the afterlife tells us more perhaps about ourselves than about the afterlife. At the very least, Terry hopes there is not grass, and if there is, that someone else will mow it. So three thoughts before I head into the afterlife itself. Not literally, I hope, and not quite yet anyway. First, certain ideas in Christian theology have decimated the earth. Let's look at the second chapter of Genesis. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. The act of naming connotes power over that which is named. So for example, we offer a medical diagnosis as a way of gaining some power over the symptoms. Knowing what plagues us helps. In the case of naming every living creature on earth, Christians literally took this to mean having power over them. Further, in the first chapter of Genesis, we read, And God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and after all the wild creatures of the earth, and over every living thing that creeps upon the earth. Here, the misreading of dominion meant we could do whatever we wanted with the earth's resources. All living creatures and the earth itself needed to be tamed, needed to be subservient to our wants and needs, and used for our gain as superior beings. We all see where this thinking and acting got us, on the eve of destruction. And, as Jung says, where there is love there is not power, and where there is power there is not love. So for the most part, Christians did not love the earth and its creatures. If anything, American Christians insisted that God singularly had blessed them with this land, and it was theirs to do with as they pleased. This was combined with the notion that Christians ought to live for heaven, so earth and its creatures became an inferior commodity living for heaven, devastated the earth. Influenced by American individualism, salvation was also imagined as an individual proposition, expressed in the 19th century formula, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? This ignores the more biblical idea of salvation as a collective or communal affair, which we will explore later. Second, let's take hell off the table. If we're honest, part of the pleasure of a concept of hell is imagining all the people we hope end up there. Of course, it won't be you and me. Everyone's sins are worse than ours. Recall the Apostles' Creed. We confess, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The fullest form of the Apostles' Creed was written in 700 AD. But, as David Miller points out, the spiritual fantasy of a descent to hell was already in the minds of early apocryphal writers and church fathers. He writes, It is as if in one sense or another, a descent was simply self-understood as a part of fundamental religious meaning and experience. Being down is a part of life. If we must hold on to a notion of hell, then think of it as C.S. Lewis does in his novel, The Great Divorce. He writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. Finally, consider if Christ descended to hell during his three days in the tomb. Can there still be hell? What remains forever hellish if Christ has walked there? Third, let's reflect on the words imagine and imagination. Our usual understanding of these words has to do with something that is unreal. Instead, Morgan Muscle notes, people in earlier times conceived of soul as an intermediate faculty that inhabits an imaginal realm between the physical world of body, and the heights of pure spirit. Imaginal, not imaginary, a disparaging term which suggests that soul, vision, dream, and myth are not real. So when it comes to knowing, we have three paths, our senses, our intellect, and our soulful imagining. We use our five senses. We are capable of intellectual reflection, intuition, and insight. And we have the perception of imaginal power. For example, Robert McNamara, former Secretary of State, affirmed that the catastrophe of the war in Vietnam over which he presided pointed to A failure of imagination, not a failure of our intellect or a failure of our senses. Comparing our unpreparedness for the attack on Pearl Harbor with that on the Twin Towers, National Security Agent Director Michael Hayden said, It perhaps was more a failure of imagination this time than last. So Jung's great two-word sentence, soul imagines. Our culture and our religion carry huge deficits in gathering knowledge through the intermediate world of soul. Now on to the afterlife proper. Part of our problem in conceiving of an afterlife is that when the New Testament was written, people had a simple view of the universe. It was a three-tiered universe with heaven above, hell below, and earth in the middle. Heaven is not up there. Hell is not down there. We've been up there in more ways than one and all we find is more universe. No matter how far we drill into the earth, we do not find a fiery pit ruled by a devil and pitchfork. We are here in the middle and muddle of it. Yet, remaining largely unaware, we are surrounded by the presence of God. Further, many of us misconstrue the notion of eternal life. In the Gospel of John, he records Jesus' saying, For anyone who loves his life loses it, anyone who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. John Sanford comments, this world is a passing phenomenon. Though the unenlightened ego takes it for reality, it is only a provisional reality, as real, let us say, as a snowflake that will melt with the first warmth of spring." Therefore, those who cling to the things of this world will be severely limited in consciousness. In psychological language, they will never live beyond the narrow confines of their ego. Eternal life here is not to be understood as living forever. Rather, eternal life is an entirely new dimension of reality in which time itself takes on an entirely new significance. For time, as commonly understood, is not an absolute, but a special construct of the limited ego. What time is, in and of itself, escapes our comprehension, and in God as the Father, there is no time. So we are to begin experiencing eternal life in the here and now. Our ego is to be grasped by a greater reality in the here and now. We are to experience the expansiveness of the spiritual and soulful world now. Heaven is not a carrot for being good now. Hell is not a punishment for being bad. This is nothing more than first-grade Santa Claus morality. Now, many of you will be familiar with Jesus' words in the 14th chapter of John, usually read at a funeral service. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Rather than a palatial estate, the Aramaic word for mansions is better translated as stations— or temporary resting places. Where is the Father's house? Neil Douglas Klotz, the Aramaic scholar, writes, It is everywhere. We are within it, whatever state or condition we are experiencing at the moment. Better translated, Jesus tells his disciples he is going, that is, expanding or rising to a different level within the house of his father, and that he is leaving them a road map to follow in the inner world of the soul. We get an imaginal glimpse of the afterlife in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce. In it, an unnamed narrator finds himself in a gray town, waiting for a bus, He boards the bus along with a small number of other people and the bus proceeds to fly over the gray town. The bus lands on a huge cliff and the narrator and the other passengers get out. They find that they've landed by a beautiful river surrounded by grass and trees. However, the narrator quickly discovers that everything in this place is motionless Even the blades of grass are rigid and hard. This makes walking around very painful. The narrator also realizes that he no longer has a solid body. He and his peers are ghosts. The narrator slowly realizes that he is in the afterlife. As he realizes this, he sees a group of spirits approaching the ghosts, The spirits are bright and have solid bodies. They've come to try to convince the ghosts to come with them toward the beautiful, majestic mountains in the distance. But most of the ghosts refuse to do so. The narrator witnesses spirits trying to convince the ghosts to stay by the river, regain their solid bodies, and eventually climb to the top of the mountain. Each time, however, the ghost refused to stay and walked back to the bus. Just as the narrator is thinking of returning to the bus, he sees the spirit of one of his favorite authors, George MacDonald. MacDonald greets the narrator cheerfully and promises to show him around. For the rest of the book, MacDonald carries the narrator around the valley showing him conversations between spirits and ghosts. In the first conversation, the narrator sees a spirit trying to convince the ghosts of a famous artist to remain in the valley and go to heaven. The artist arrogantly refuses, claiming that he couldn't stand to live in a place without personal property where his painting wouldn't be appreciated. MacDonald shows the narrator a female ghost who complains so much about her husband that she eventually disappears entirely. She is so consumed by pettiness and fussiness that she no longer has a soul. Another female ghost, Pam, argues with the spirit of her brother Reginald about her love for her dead child Michael. Pam claims to love Michael so much that she couldn't love anyone else during her lifetime. Reginald argues that Pam must surrender her love for Michael in order to love God completely. And afterwards, Pam will be reunited with Michael in heaven forever. Pam refuses to give up her love for her son, claiming that Reginald is being cruel. MacDonald explains that by surrendering our earthly desire, even for our loved ones, humans can become more beautiful, more powerful, and more loving than they ever thought possible. What is most helpful in Lewis's imaginal afterlife is the idea that we must continue a process of becoming self-aware and remain involved in spiritual and soulful growth. This imagining is quite different than the cliched image of all of us sitting around the throne of God, singing hymns for eternity, an idea that has never appealed to me. I'd likely get seated next to the aging soprano with the wobbling off-pitched screech. Another Lewis image of the afterlife comes from his children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. In the final book, The Last Battle, Lewis uses the image of an ordinary door as the entrance to the heavenly land. He looked and saw the queerest and most ridiculous thing you can imagine. Only a few yards away, clear to be seen in the sunlight, there stood a rough wooden door, and round it, the framework of the doorway. Nothing else, no walls, no roof. He walked towards it bewildered, and the others followed, watching to see what he would do. He walked around to the other side of the door, but it looked just the same from the other side. He was still in the open air on a summer morning. The door was simply standing up by itself as if it had grown there like a tree. What I find evocative in this image is that it implies that the spiritual world exists where? Next to us, close by, an undiscovered dimension, surrounding us, one step over, through the door in front of us. As Henry Corbin remarks, behind this world there is a sky and earth and ocean animals, plants, and celestial humans, but every being there is celestial. The spiritual entities there correspond to the human beings there, but no earthly thing is there. Here is a worthy spiritual and soulful view of the world. Spiritual reality lies behind all of earthly reality, informing, impacting, and impinging upon it? What if the afterlife is not a replacement for earthly life, but an integration of and fulfillment of the earthly? As in the 21st chapter of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In the Revelation vision, we do not fly up to heaven, but heaven comes down and exalts, glorifies, elevates the earthly realm. This vision is not one of the individuals who have been singularly saved. This is a redemption of all of creation, the world made new in a heavenly manner. Because God seems to desire to redeem all of creation. At its finest, the Christian vision is the redemption of the human community. Dare we say all of us or none of us? The Christian vision includes the redemption of the animal kingdom, the trees and flowers, the mountains, the deserts, the oceans, all that we have despoiled and destroyed. And what about us as individuals? I think many of us have questions about things like Does my individual identity survive? Will I meet my predeceased loved ones? Will I have a body? At its best, the teachings of the Christ are highly relational, deeply personal, and centered on love to the point of commanding us to love not only our neighbors, but also our enemies, to love the outcasts, the marginalized, the poor, and the downtrodden. Why wouldn't the afterlife be just as, if not more, relational and more centered on love for all of us? You and I did not ask to be born We had no choice in how we look and whatever natural skills we have or our essential character. It's all gift. It is all freely given, all from the hands of that which we call God. Soul imagines it will be the same in the afterlife. Thank you for listening. If you find this podcast helpful, I would appreciate you suggesting it to others. And next time, I will explore more in depth a soulful spirituality that is more appropriate to the times in which we live.